This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, we'll buckle up because I'm going to throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. Powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water can just do alone. One stick contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with five essential vitamins. Now, I pride myself on telling you about things that I either already like or just use in my everyday life. And I have to say, I've actually been a fan of Liquid IV for a long, long time now. I use it for everything from, you know, just long runs to stay in shape, all those late nights with those after hours or just when I'm feeling a little dehydrated. I turn to it so it could just, my God, set me straight, make me feel like a million bucks again, and just get me ready for the day. So please head on over to their website. That's liquid-iv.com to check out their amazing line of products. And get this, when you use promo code Art of the Beholder, all one word, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, if you need a little direction on where to start, I recommend Lemon Lime. Guys, you're going to love it, won't be disappointed. So please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures. Now, back to the show. Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day, and today we're going to be talking about art and film, filmmaking and direction, by focusing on the career of filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. Focusing on the years of 1950 to 1965. To hash it out, I'm joined by our very own Scream Queen, our resident master of fashion in all things art, and that is Miss Alexandra Parsons of AlexandraParsons.com. Miss Parsons, welcome back. Oh, thank you. I'm very <laughs> excited. You're welcome. We've been talking about this for what a month now. We yeah. um, yes. we're busting at the seams, as we like to say here. We um, I just finished the very last film in the filmography right before we started recording. So I am fucking born ready for the show. <laughs> now, why are we talking about him today? Um, Mr. Hitchcock is, of course, regarded as one of the most influential figures in the history of cinema. He helped shape what has become the thriller genre before it even had a name. Now, of course, before we can discuss, we all need a little background. Sir Alfred Joseph Hitchcock was born on August 13th, 1899 in Leytonstone, Essex, England. He entered the film industry in 1919 as a title card designer and made his first feature, his directorial debut, with the silent film The Pleasure Garden in 1925. And the rest, as they say, is history. He's won two Golden Globes, eight Laurel Awards, and five Lifetime Achievement Awards, including the very first BAFTA Academy Fellowship Award and an AF. I Lifetime Achievement Award. He was nominated five times for an Academy Award for Best Director, but uh, unfortunately, plot twist, he never actually got one. His, very, uh, his picture, Rebecca, was nominated for 11 Oscars and won Best Picture. In 2012, Hitchcock's Vertigo displays Citizen Kane as the British Film Institute's greatest film ever made. And by 2021, nine of his films had been selected for preservation by the U.S. National Film Registry. Before we hash it out, of course, we need a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the novel The Entropy Sessions. 
a tale of loss, love, and madness, and our past, present, and future relationships with technology. Find it on Amazon and as an audiobook through Audible. Your support helps us continue our journey. Now back to the show. So the first thing that we need to talk about today, Ms. Parsons, is Mm -hmm. um, the fact that I found it fascinating that Hitchcock was one of the first to make himself a bit of a brand, right? He was a brand within and of himself as a film director. He had cameos in his movies. He did interviews. And of course, he did Alfred Hitchcock Presents from 1955 to 1965, playing host duties for an anthology uh, TV show series that focused on the things that he loved, suspense and thrillers and shit like that. And we just never have seen this before, right? Now, his style uh, includes editing and camera movements to mimic the person's gaze, right? Turning the audience into what are known as voyeurs or focusing on what is known as voyeurs. Maximizing anxiety, fear, stress, tension, and of course, the sense of the thrill, which is, of course, why the genre is named after that. Now, he has done famous devices, or he helped not only coin techniques and things of that nature. Uh, Probably the biggest one is, uh, do you know what a MacGuffin is? A MacGuffin is that thing in a movie where um, either all the characters are chasing after it, or it's it's one item that actually doesn't have any value in the plot. So a good example of this is the microfilm in North by Northwest, uh, or uh, the $40,000 in Psycho. So no- nothing was ever resolved in those things. It was just a plot device to further the plot itself and make the characters move forward to get to the thrilling and suspenseful parts. Yeah, because it's psycho. They're just like, well, what about that 40,000? They're just like, it's in the it's in the mud. It's, it's in the swamp. <laughs> That's it. The You're like, yeah. what? No one's going to go get it? <laughs> yeah. So obviously, so we need to talk about his major themes before we focus on the films themselves. So as already stated, voyeurism, mistaken identity, torn personalities, and of course, the psychopathic tendencies of his characters his go-to actors and actresses include Cary Grant uh which I I I would argue so this is the guy in uh, Sketch Thief North by Northwest I I think he helped to kind of shape that cool debonair leading man at Mm -hmm. the time you know that we eventually got with the James Bond series things of that nature and coincidentally uh fucking Sean Connery was his leading man and and Marnie the last of the films we're going to discuss today um as well as Ingrid Bergman uh, Jimmy Stewart. I, I've been working on a Jimmy on a James. That was good. Stewart that, that was, was pretty good, good right? Oh, yeah. What are you doing over there? Oh, I, this is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I, 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 wait, wait, just a minute here. Oh, gee whiz. Uh, so that's that's my James Stewart. And you know, you guys can book me. He loved James Stewart. That's another. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and Cary Grant. Yeah, they were in four films um, throughout. Um, only two, I think, in this this decade and a half that we're going to focus on in the show today but he was in four films just like james stewart and then of course we can't forget the timeless beauty that is grace kelly my god she is uh, an absolute stunner and um his one of his favorite go-to actresses before she became a real life princess Mm -hmm. (laughs) in real life so let's go ahead and dive in so in 1950 we're starting with film stage fright this and it depicts the story of a man on the run accused of murder and an old flame that aims to clear his name but as the journey evolves all is not what it seems missed alexander oh we should talk about this before we we actually dive into the pieces so um miss alexander the great Mm -hmm. started from the hits started from the earliest work and worked her way back i started at the very i started at the roots 1950 stage fright and worked my way up to the to the to the hits 
Yeah. Um, and ended like I already joked about this morning with Marnie. So what do you think of stage fright? Um, I liked it a bit because it was a little, it was talky. I like to say talky because oh, yeah. of all the monologues. I did fall asleep a few times, but I mean, which <laughs> was so embarrassed. That was a lie. I ended with stage fright and you ended with Marnie, which is so funny. And then we didn't plan it that way, folks. We did not. It just... I did it almost out of convenience, but also like there was an intent for me to start with Psycho and then Birds and Vertigo and all that stuff. But, um, you know, Stage Fright, just like Strangers on a Train, it had that really beautiful aesthetic of like the black and white film, Mm -hmm. the shadowing from the lighting, the monologues. um, Mm -hmm. And like I started watching it with my dad and he says he's never saw this. I enjoyed Mm it. I, I liked it. It was a little like slow. My dad's like, I this is I think it was stupid. That's my dad's thing, and I walked away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I, I really like it. stage fright, to be honest. Yeah, you said yeah. that held a, a place in your heart, and I was like thinking about that and watching it. I was like, I think it's because it's that classic. You have like Marlene Dietrich, Hollywood, the acting. It does an homage to all of like the Academy of like actors, and it's it's. Yeah, it's very theatrical. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. Yeah, no. um, And a lot of these, I'm glad you use the word theatrical because a lot of these films, you know, uh, are either uh, adapted from a novel or they came straight from the theater. And we'll talk about that a little later. And that's why a lot of these films really kind of leaned on essentially creating what the theatrical version would be like if you saw it live and you know in a playhouse and put it to the screen and that's where i felt like i i enjoyed this one because it we were already starting to see that curve into him realizing that you know he didn't have to do it specifically exactly like the theater did it i mean he always prided himself on being a visual storyteller he came from silent film you had to be a visual storyteller but it was clear that once there was um sound you know we mm-hmm. could hear the dialogue they kind of relied a little too heavy on that like that's our, like when i was listening to some of these i could go like i could listen to them in my car they were so dialogue heavy like i could get everything i needed from the plot and things like that that the the visual language really didn't wasn't always necessary and but as we went along and he had more balance and then of course when he went truly back to his visual landscape um visual language roots and really focused more on that and that's where of course you know things like vertigo and and we'll get to that a little later um but those kind of films come in where he was just hitting he was in the fucking zone um but before we move on to strangers on a train which is miss parson one of miss parson's favorite Mm -hmm. um i do want to talk about a couple of other themes and um things that i noticed right from the get-go when we focused on these um this first decade is um and that it, it includes he yeah he was always drawn to the concept of madness psychological madness right but that i always noted this noticed this about his stories as much as there was always yeah a murder mystery or we were following a protagonist that was going through a descent of madness at the heart of his stories honestly to me were always love stories it's very true you know i i was thinking that too I, I want to try not to, di- I tend to like, you know, divert, uh, digress a lot, but I don't want to go off on a tangent too much. But yes, I was thinking that when I was watching, especially when I, I kind of laughed at a couple things, like when I watched Vertigo at the end, we'll get there. I was kind of like, <laughs> yeah. okay, so he, got, he just decided to go that way in Vertigo. 
And no, I, I'm, I'm glad we talked about this in our pre-shows because, yeah, his his films, you know, I think we can talk about that now before we even, even get, to, get to Vertigo. His films would kind of abruptly end a lot. And, let's, it's like, and that's how it ends? I was okay. Yeah, like either he didn't know what to do with the ending or he wanted to just leave it there and let the audience um, kind of let their imaginations yeah. fill in what happened with the resolution. Because now we're so, I think we have to talk about the di- dichotomy of what we're used to now, right? And that dichotomy is we're used to a climax happening and and then we have, it, we have there's time for it to breathe, you know, like the cops show up and they interview the the victims and we get, we get time to resolve with these characters, that, that moment of resolution and closure and even epilogues, you know, sometimes we see, Oh, how they're doing in the future, things like that. Where with his films, they would just like cut to the credits. We're done. This is it. We're done here. And, uh, but I always, I, I guess the point of bringing up that those thematic elements was I always noticed that his films would have, uh, not A and B plots per se, but two parallel A plots. It would be the the thriller, the the suspense type of plot, the murder mystery or the the psychological madness type of elements. But then there would always be the love angle, the love interests, these two characters that are bound to each other, or or and all the things that love uh, represents and and things of that nature. And so let's uh, let's move on to 1951's Stranger. Strangers on a train. Now, Miss Miss Parsons, you know we never talked about this in our pre-shows, so I, let's do it right now. Why is this one of your favorites? I was trying to. I was thinking about that. And why <laughs> this is one of my favorites, and so I like, kind of yeah. I watched it a few times, and then I re- was like skimming through it again today. Um, I think I just love the the buildup of that so much, especially, and that was kind of like I believe to the one of the introductions. The, to where you know it's all very talky it's the buildup of two people two men kind of planning this device and you see that mm-hmm. in his other films as well like especially dial in for murder you're like this is 30 minutes of them just talking about this fucking murder like <laughs> and um strangers on the train is just <laughs> the first like, act is just that them str- figuring it out but strangers on the plane you've immediately are like this guy's unwell like this oh this, yeah this guy is mentally unwell and this poor other guy he just like immediately builds up a character development of these two people. Like this guy's kind of the sucker. This guy is mentally unwell. And then you just could kind of hook like what's going to happen. Yeah. That's a, let's give the good people a quick synopsis. So strangers on a train tells the story of two men who muse on the idea of trading murders and what happens when one goes through with it and the other declines. So that's what Miss Parsons has been hinting at is, so that's the basic premise. And then we get to see how that plays out. And yeah, this is another perfect example, just like the end of stage fright that mm-hmm. uh, one of our lead protagonists is actually the psychopath that we are following along the whole time. And we're starting to see uh, that visual language, I think, still evolve. You know, there was always that strong use of lighting over the eyes thing where it's just like a bar of light, right? And, <laughs> and we're seeing a lot more of that. But we're also seeing, you know, especially with the what was it the carousel ending i always like laugh at really awkward scenes yeah. the carousel scene where it just like collapses at the end you're like jesus christ like, I mean, oh my god it's so but, but violent think about, but think about if you were a young gal your age 
but back then, right? Yeah. Like you'd never seen that before, That's right? Now scary. we're so used, right? Now we're so used to these big fucking set pieces. Oh, we should do a little um, tangent corner and talk about this for a second. This is a good segue to how refreshing was this to watch these films? Like we're so used to fucking Thanos just like destroying the universe left and right, and being when, visually overwhelmed and yeah, yeah. just like a overstimulated consistently. Just to go back films. to like just like excellent character development and mm-hmm. plotting and things really simple again. You know, we were we've been so used to the, the alternative and my example example with Thanos that going back to these very in a way simple visual language type of films, but thought provoking and really complex plots and narratives. Um, I just I don't know. It was just kind of so nice to. It, it was it was very refreshing and and being able to see like you said, the character development and somebody that was so detail oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell he was, he was very meticulous and his filmmaking. Famous for that. Famous fact. for yeah. it. Yeah. And he, like in North and strangers on the train, like just how detailed he was on like focusing on the lighter um, and like how he zoomed. And that was his like special, one of his specialties, right? Like zooming in on, what do you call it? The Mac- would the, would the lighter be a MacGuffin? Would that be? Would the lighting be? A lighter. No, it, no, they actually used the, they actually used the uh, lighter as a way to reveal that he was the, the killer. He was the, the killer. Yeah. So no, that, that wouldn't be a MacGuffin. Okay. So that because be they MacGuffin. used it in okay. the plot to conclude, you know, everything. Okay. I was just trying to think like, what was a MacGuffin in that film? But uh, yeah, it, it was refreshing. It was nice. It was a lot of them. It, it just kind of confirmed why he still is a master of suspense mm-hmm. to me watching all these films or rewatching some of them. And as an artist and going to art school, why like the cult like the colorography and all of that is was so important yeah um, and why it was like embedded in us and these still shots that we would watch and like typography and so it was very um nostalgic a little bit for me and it was like kind of touching base onto like the roots of um inspiration as an artist and um, so that was really good on a lot of levels for me absolutely yeah and i i kind of just to piggyback off of that, to me, I had so many aha moments of like, oh, this is where that style or that trope or mm-hmm. that theme comes from. Like, I, I I didn't quite fathom until we went down this journey of of literally seeing all of these films in this frame that I realized, oh, my God, he coined or he designed or he invented so many of these very influential styles and things and film and that it, to this day it is copied that i was like and we'll we'll get we'll get there in a minute but before we do of course we need to talk about i confess 1953 i confess tells the story of a catholic priest that when accused of murder must decide between siding with with the secular world and the holy rites he vowed to maintain maintaining the very secrecy of confessions even when one of those confessions were from the murderer himself so I, um, you know, I don't, I liked, I confess, I, I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on it. Definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I want to touch on before we move on to the big, big, you know, leap in progression and his skill level and everything as a, as an artist and filmmaker. Uh, the only thing I want to touch on and I confess is again at, you know, get past, I know I just read the bio, the synopsis of the film, but underneath that. There is a woman that is in love with this priest, and that is 
part of the main parallel paralleling plot paralleling yeah let's say that that's a word sure um that he that alongside them trying to pin <laughs> the murder on the priest because he's involved with it so much and he's really just trying to maintain his vows and not he's not able to tell anybody the confessions of his you know the people in his clergy or however you want to say it she's not that, supposed to right? right yeah and i wonder if that was fictional or because to today the the complete opposite's true if you <laughs> so all you murderers out there if you confess your murder to a priest they are required by law to tell law enforcement they can't mm -hmm. they can't fucking keep it to themselves but for the purpose of this plot he did that but along alongside of all that um he is uh pursued by this woman that is um in love with him and and he's i i, I don't it's not clear if i feel like he's there's love elements too from his side but he has to stay true to his um his yeah his vow as uh, a vow of celibacy as a priest yeah you see this uh, you could totally see that people in current films and current shows have taken it from this movie mm -hmm. like uh fleabag and mm -hmm. um the show evil which i kind of like they do that too there's just like a lot of repetitive this thing like oh, the, the woman's in love with the priest I, yeah, I, I, there's not much to say about No Offense if somebody really loves this film. I wasn't that... <laughs> Actually tweet at us. I want to meet the people. Yeah, I wasn't... I, wasn't, I kind of got very distracted during it. I wasn't really that... I, I was like, okay, this is... And I usually am very much drawn to that, like... Because growing up Catholic, I'm drawn to that. But I think maybe I just had too much going on. And I'd like to rewatch it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. No That's problem. pretty much. Yeah. We do love we do love Montgomery Clift though. We, we do love him. My mom loves him. So. Oh, how's Victoria? She's good. We, you Did know, she listen to the show? Not oh, not yet. I keep telling her to watch. We like, have the censored to... one, guys. So I have. We I took have the out the curse words. She. They're so cute because they're eighty and eighty one. They like grew up watching a lot of these films. And they love Hitchcock films. Yeah, and um, they had a lot to say about we had dinner last night and it was mm. a, so it was a really good conversation bonding piece to talk to my parents about instead of so like, you got to hash it out with the family so you you did. know it, it was it was a little uh priming the my it's i didn't know this much well actually actually my new favorite one is rear rear window like i think that beats strangers on mm. a plane and i told mm. my mom that she goes that's my favorite too ali oh my god so we talked a lot about it and just how why we love it, but we'll get into that. Yeah, before we get there, we have to talk about Dial M for Murder. In 1954, I think, as already hinted at, I think this is a a, a big leap in his skill level as a director. Mm -hmm. So Dial M for Murder tells the story of a man who plots to kill his wife after he finds out that he's that she's been cheating on him. But not everything goes according to plan when he tries to uh, execute said plan and almost um so yeah uh now this is this is actually dial in for murder has actually been recreated many many times the probably the biggest example of that or the biggest uh, adaptation of this film is in the 90s um a perfect murder with michael douglas oh yeah and when it's paltrow so um they now it that. was adapted it wasn't an exact recreation because um there was some plot elements that were either combined or changed entirely like at the end of spoiler alert at the end of a perfect murder it's the it's the wife that essentially discovers everything whereas 
uh, her former lover in the original helps to kind of discover it. And of course, the police um, investigator. So this is, you know, this is another perfect example of, before I, I, I pass it back to you, Ms. Parsons, mm-hmm. of um, this came from the theater. And it's clear because um, there's like one set that they're m- mostly at, and that's the interior of the house. The monologue scene, right? Yeah, like yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're almost most of the film except for a couple of exteriors and one like dining scene that he's at um but but i i noticed here's the difference for me and this will probably be a good tee up for you is Mm -hmm. i was so much more captivated you know there was a lot of dialogue and monologues and uh i don't think any soliloquies but yeah um all of the traditional shakespearean devices Mm -hmm. but i didn't um i was so captivated because so and that's how he shot the scenes too it wasn't just people talking and yeah like you're in front of a live um set of performers at a play it was it was shot too in a way to be very captivating mm-hmm. and so i i i yeah this is probably one of my favorites on the list oh that's great i feel like in the beginning there was scenes where it was as if you were looking at it like an audience and well yeah and that goes back to his yeah. his used to make the audience voyeurs like the, he wants to make you feel as if you're literally there with them these characters so that's, yeah that's by design which i think that's why i, I didn't re- i love i think living in new york for so long too like i always loved like looking in people's windows i'm a bit of a voyeur and like seeing <laughs> how people live maybe that's why i love your rin- window so much but this had that effect too um was this his, was this the first one that um grace kelly was in was this like an intro i think so i don't remember off the top of my head because she was i believe th- three films yeah. And it, yeah, I think it was in a row. It was Dial in for Murder, Rear Window, and then To Catch a Thief. And then she became a princess. It was like, sorry, Bye, I got to bounce. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I don't need <laughs> I'm, to I'm do out. Yeah. I'm a princess now. I'm, re- I'm retired. I loved it. I re- I did have to rewind it a few times because I was like, oh, shit, this is so heavy dialogue. The plot, Yeah, the plotting was very thick. And yeah. And I think that's why like, I kind of write that way you know i i overwrite yeah. just to give myself some self <laughs> self-criticism thank you clayton for for reining me in with your editing but um so yeah it's uh but it's still done in such a well-crafted way mm-hmm. that even if you do have to kind of rewind you're like oh aha and oh oh this and that it's and, so and, you know, beautifully done like even simple as like picking up the coat like when yeah all when, these little details yeah just he's the, that's what i think i love about I do know I love about his stuff is those details oriented things like the way he picks up the coat at the end to see if the key is and that's kind of like the plot twist like oh it's a simple thing that like he messed up at the key and he thought how do can you say you could probably say this a lot quicker than I can <laughs> what <laughs> the guy the guy who kills her <laughs> I'm like going over my words. The guy that kills her, she, did it, he put the key actually back where it was supposed to be? Right. Yeah. He was supposed to keep it to make it look like it was stolen, but he ended up putting it exactly back. And that's how they caught Yeah. It. So there's a scene at the, like, there's a scene where the inspector figures that out. But it takes, like, poor Grace Kelly goes to jail for a little <laughs> bit. I'm like, really? Poor, Just- poor all of his women. We, uh, we should maybe do a little tangent corner on Miss um, Parsons as our, our as our resident voice of of uh, of our female audience. How do you feel how Hitchcock depicts women in his films? Well, I looked up the whole blonde thing, 
Did you oh, yeah. look that he up? Loves, he loves his blondes. And he loves he, his beautiful blondes that are icy. Yeah, and he says it's because they're less suspicious. Like, people see a brunette and they they, they'll suspect a brunette to be up to no good or be a little, like, have something under her, you know, hiding in her sleeves. But with blondes, people are more easily, they could be more innocent looking, which is definitely, my sister was, I had a conversation with her and she's a, she was an actress for a long time. And she said that, uh, well, it still hasn't changed. Everybody was a fucking blonde blonde haired blue eyed you know those were the leads it's just how it is on the visual aspect but i don't that was not always true um there were a lot of beautiful brunettes as leads but i think as far he's always making these women like uh, some of them a little most of the women except for maybe strangers on the train like mentally unwell but like what mother issues do you have well he had a yeah there's there's complete uh, debates about this from film historians that uh, they go back and forth on their feelings of yeah not only his sexuality and how maybe there was some repressed sexuality mm-hmm. and that he would put it into his films you know or repressed feelings about women or sexuality or what have you and they started to seeing a lot of trends of of yeah of course the 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 beautiful blonde the beautiful icy blonde that always gets punished you know at the end of his films or humiliated and things of that nature i you know as much as i saw that i since there's been you know we have another 20 30 years of cinema under both of our belts i i kind of looked at it in a way of i felt like he gave equal footing to both men and women having dark sides you know where yeah that they would that they would have villainous like sides where because you know we grew up in the 90s mm-hmm. uh in the early aughts and i felt like hollywood went through this big phase of like only men are the bad guys and women you know are always the good guys especially like in horror films things of that nature like there was always like the last you know female standing kind of a thing the uh things of that nature where i felt like they went through this big shift you know and then they and then they finally are doing that again nowadays that's why i I always gravitate towards jillian flynn's work with gone girl and sharp objects like they're not you know and these are you know these are female writers writing about female villains and they're not they're they're not shying away from women being these terrible human (laughs) beings in their you know as characters and in their in their stories and i felt like you know as much as i think there was a lot of negative press against this and there is i think he did um show a lot of disrespect for women to me there was also this just this element of like well yes these men are psychopaths and terrible and shitty but sometimes women can be this way too or vice versa so that's how I looked at it. No, I think you're right. Because at first I was feeling that oh, he doesn't. Oh, he has some like these women are always like so dramatic. And like, well, that's also <laughs> this hilarious. Some of it was hilarious. Like they're Erotic, mentally unwell. Yeah. But then you see it in um, Strangers on a Train. Like that's like he's unwell. Um, yeah, the men are definitely um, sometimes terrible, terrible humans. Too. Rear, so I feel rear, like the opposite rear window. Even Vertigo, uh, oh my God, but... <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive into Rear Window while we're on the subject. So 1954, Rear Window, it tells the story of a man who plays a voyeur uh, to all his neighbors through, as already hinted at in the title, his rear window. But things suddenly take a turn when he suspects that one of them may have committed 
murder. So I and I think this is another turning point before I I, I, I pass it back to you. I think in turn in terms of visual storytelling, it was clearly like, you know, you know, these sets were built on a like a lot in Hollywood, like a Paramount lot or something like that. Because when he would actually pan over all of the people, you know, the musician and the dancer and the husband and wife and the other um, couple that had the little dog, like, you know, it's it just like perfectly would pan. Mm-hmm. And we would, again, as the audience become the voyeurs, mm-hmm. becoming, you know, going into the eyes of, of Jimmy Stewart <laughs> and um, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart impression again, James Stewart. And um, <laughs> I love that. It's good. It's a pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, gee whiz. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, I, I felt like, oh, my God, this this is this is a perfect example of once he, he was really honing in on his um, cinematography skills and things like that. And this has to be watched. You can't just listen to it. It was so visually appealing. It made me miss New York a lot. Like, mm. I was just like, oh, I miss that because it is one of those things, except in New York, you're going to see like a, someone's walking around naked that you don't want to see at some point. You're like, oh, God, um, many times it's happened to me there. I'm like, oh, I should, wish I didn't look up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was the first time I felt like he was, you know, we were seeing a lot more sexuality or overt sexuality in his films. Like when we would see the dancer female character and she would just bend over and it was just yeah, like yeah. a shot of her, of her ass. And I was like, do we really need that? No. But he of course he wanted that kind of he, a thing. So. Because it's, I mean, there's a truth behind it because it's very honest. Like, you know, that's happens all the time. Like, sure. and, and yeah. essentially you see people walking around, you, you kind of can't help to kind of look, maybe she should just draw her shades. If well, she didn't that's why I'd like to do that is I think I do agree with the, uh, the argument that is a part of the human condition. It's, it, we call it people watching now, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone we, I like, I like I love people watching, you know? Yeah. And that's essentially, that's the nice version of being a voyeur. Voyeur seems like, you know, a little more of a pervert or they're peeping or something like that. There's, um, there's been a lot of films that were basically like redos of this right like absolutely oh yeah. tons of them like there's I it's, it, and it's it's just like um it's alluded to a lot too in pop culture like you know like in the simpsons or something you know like where a character would be yeah be um i think like, even like suburbia with shia labeouf that was, for some reason that popped in my head i think that was the last film i saw that was this exact plot you know him like stuck in a room and like spying on his on his neighbors and then suddenly he suspects one of murder and tries to uncover it what happens when you have too much time on your hand (laughs) that's what i was thinking when i was watching like this is what happens when you have Uh, idols idle hands are the devil's playground yeah yes but i i love their um he didn't wasn't sure if he wanted to be with his um god i can't remember her name was it was it mary i don't know this is grace kelly grace kelly's character um i could just look it up but he wasn't sure if he wanted to be with her because she was just so perfect i was like oh god i was like how annoying is that again another love story though yeah behind the murder mystery there's a love story almost always and then he realized they're good they're good partners in crime. Yeah. Like and this is where I feel like this is an example of she was brave. Like she broke into his house, you know. So for all the arguments that like he is very disrespectful to women and things like that and there is a lot of evidence to this in his films. Um there are moments where they're the brave heroine, you know, they're going in to save the day a little bit. Or and or the men fall victim 
they the men fall victim to these women or like the women have more control that the men think than people think right yeah so there it depends how you perceive it that's actually a good segue to our next film 1955's to catch a thief so to catch a thief tells the story of a retired cat burglar who helps to seek out a new thief that has been copying his old tactics and he has to make sure he keeps his name clear so he he goes on the hunt to find him or her and we're we, we see that like the um i don't I I don't know. I I think a lot of people love to catch a thief. This is another one like when you're kind of like, oh, I felt like I was falling asleep. I I felt like this one was a little duller to me. It like, was. I it, it I agree with you. It there wasn't a talking dialogue in the beginning. It was just shot. It was just like I think he just wanted to shoot something that had <laughs> he just wanted to like visit his beautiful city. Yeah, I was like, this is. I guess we'll make a movie here. My dad was. We I watched. My parents love it. Um, and so we all watched it together last night, which was really sweet and. My dad's like, there's a lot of scenes of rooftops. I'm like, well, he's a he's a cat, <laughs> he's a cat burglar. burglar. Yeah, it's kind of like a little Easter egg. Would that be an Easter egg? Like, it's a kind of thing. Where you're like, oh, cat burglar, he's hiding. Yeah, again, uh, for the good people listening, a tweet at us. Who's the to catch a thief fans out there? I'd love. I mean, it, I could see that there was so much potential, you know, because we have Cary Grant. He's this debonair, you know. We we love to root. Me and I think Ryan have talked about this. Definitely Philip. Mm-hmm. You know, we love to root for the bad guys. When it's a very particular profession and um, like the genius thief characters like Ocean's Eleven with Danny Ocean, things like that, Mm -hmm. like to root for these anti-heroes, you know, to like to make the big score and things like that. And this is kind of that story. Mm -hmm. It is. We yeah. My sister and I, we discussed that last night, too, that it's kind of Ocean's Eleven and. The similarity between George Clooney and um, really Harry Grant—they kind of look alike a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, check it out, guys. I mean, but if you fall asleep a little, we won't. We won't hold it. It is a beautiful, aesthetically beautiful film. Yeah, the cinematography course. looks great. So the visual language is there. It's just the the actual. Her clothing uh, is amazing. Of course, as the fashion person, like I was like, <laughs> the oh, master of fashion. Oh, my mom and I were like, look how stunning. I was like, she just kind of like floats when she walks, Grace. Like she just floats. It's beautiful. Sorry. Sidetrack. No, no, you're good. No, you're good. No, we need tangent corners. So uh, let's move on to, I think, probably the lowest point in this entire filmography, and that is uh, The Trouble with Harry, 1955. Mm-hmm. The Trouble with Harry is a story that asks, what happens when you stumble upon a dead body in the woods? Um, this is definitely one that I think uh, you should watch, but it was almost like, I don't think there was a coincidence that this was filmed in the same year. So back in the day, you know, it wouldn't be four or five years between films. It would be like one or two a year because they didn't have to rely on these big set pieces or, yeah, you know, special effects. They didn't have to wait for those things because they were so plot driven, uh, character driven, narrative driven. And they didn't have the special effects. They didn't have the technology at the time. Mm-hmm. So they were able to really, you know, knock these things out and, and get them out to the public. And it, it is still good. Again. It's um, you're, we're seeing the the sub thesis here play out time and time again. It is another story um, that involves a murder, a murder mystery, and and that the core of that murder mystery is a love story. Um, and again, we well, we already see now uh, moving on to 1956's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hmm. Um, we see Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Sorry, with, with uh, uh, Judge Jimmy Stewart. Um, so the man who knew too much, which is fun fact, um, his own remake 
He made The Man Who Do Too Much, I think, I want to say 20 or 30 years ago in his filmography, and he wanted to make it better, so he did. Uh, it tells the story of a man and a woman, so we already have the, the love angle intact at the beginning. With Doris that, Day. Yeah. yeah, that learns uh, too much about an organized crime syndicate's plans about an assassination plot, resulting in the kidnapping of their son, and the trials and tribulations of not only trying to stop the, the assassination plot, but also get their son back to restore their family back whole again. Very so I, yeah, yeah, this one was fun. This one was fun. Again, it doesn't. It's not going to hold a candle to our later films, but um, I think it was fun. I think it was like him realizing the potential of his own ambitions. I think there was a lot of things in his head he wanted to do and that he had never tried. And I think that came together in the culmination of the climax and the ending, because we had what a visual language of seeing this huge orchestra play this incredible classical piece. And we're seeing that uh, edited play out with the hunt for the killer. And I thought that was that was captivating. I was like, okay, I agree. We, we don't see a lot of that in film of this era until something like this, right? I I, I thought it was really fun too, kind of like Rear Vin- Window, but there's more movement. Obviously, there's like a lot going on. <laughs> it's a lot more movement. There was, and it was like he didn't have a cast on his leg. It was ce- it was scenic, you know. There was this. It, well, I was just trying to think. Like I was gonna make a joke that it was like there's so many films. It had like an Indiana Jones feel to it at at times. With the with the scenery, because hmm. yeah, it was well, in Morocco, you know, right? Exactly, yeah. And that we dealt with a lot of different cultures and things, things of that net nature. And yeah, I you know what? I didn't think about it that way, but that's the beauty of our shows. I agree with you, Miss Parsons. Oh, it does kind of have an Indiana Jones feel to it. Uh, so yeah, definitely check it out, guys. I think this is a, another highlight, but for uh, for different reasons. I think it it um. I, I didn't get a chance to do this, but I kind of want to watch the original and then watch this one back to back. Maybe I'll do that one day. Yeah, so same. Yeah. That uh, leads us to uh, 1956 with The Wrong Man. Now, uh, before I give the synopsis, um, this one was a little bit of a highlight for me in just terms of plot and narrative. Well, more plot than narrative, because it's uh, as much as it focuses more on being a thriller or a suspense piece. It, it To me, it's a form of horror because it's a certain kind of horror that still happens to this day is is what it got from it. And uh, because it, still, it tells a story of, of mistaken identity where a man is accused of robbery and must suffer through the American judicial system to clear his name. So he has to go through so much bullshit. The last time I saw something that was perfectly in this vein is uh, The Night Of. Uh, on HBO, where oh you see yeah, a go oh my this god, it's so anxiety, so anxiety yeah. driven. So essentially, being accused for a murder or a crime you didn't commit, but you still have to go through the process, and you're still jailed in a form of prison until the trial can take place. It's just a scary concept, like because this could technically happen to any of us, and it still happens to this day. We see so many goddamn netflix documentaries about yeah you know uh some set of uh, like a series a set of a series of serial kills and then they like just pick these random people that were 
maybe associated with the scene. And then they're like in prison for decades. And then they finally get their name cleared. I mean, could you imagine that half your life being in prison? I just, it's just a scary concept. It is a scary concept. Yeah. There's a lot of like Netflix documentaries and movies that were, I think, inspired by this. What's like, did you know that Martin Scorsese was um, influenced apparently by this for Taxi Driver? I did not know that. Yeah, it was very interesting. So yeah, like let's uh, let's focus on the hits. We have made it to Vertigo to start with. 1958. Vertigo is the story of an investigator that is hired to investigate the haunting of a client's wife. But things take a turn for the strange, the very strange, when he falls in love with her. She decides to commit suicide, and then a woman that looks absolutely identical to her shows up on his radar and he aims to turn her in to his former love. So I, I think on pure, uh, on a pure cinematography, visual, uh, language side, um, I, this is my favorite. You is know, it? Because, it's, yeah, it's... because he played so much with color, color theory and film and the dream sequences. We had never seen anything like this. And this, I, I, I would argue, you know, I I probably need to do a little more homework on this, but this had to be the birthplace of the psychological thriller, which is my favorite genre to this day. I love love psychological thrillers. And with all the dream sequences and all the things that were going on, this was something we'd never seen before. And when I rewatched it, I was I was I was still captivated, except for that for that ending, which we joked about earlier. (laughs) I haven't seen it since I was in college. So when I got to watch it again, I could rewind it a lot in certain scenes that I really wanted to soak in. Um, And I agree with you. And I remember when I I first went to San Francisco and being like taking pictures and being there. And I'm like, God, it's so Hitchcock and being in such like such a vibe. I'm like, what? I was like, oh, yeah, because I watched Vertigo. (laughs) around that time and it's just like so much has happened in my life since then so re-watching this was as if I was watching it for the first time and my mouth dropped because I totally forgot I was like man what a fucking twist they don't make films like this anymore I have a thesis for you for just Mm -hmm. this film okay? okay I think Vertigo is a perfect analysis of the intersection intersection between obsession Mm -hmm. and love yeah because there's there is obsession in love and love and obsession and i feel like the movie takes you know a little bit again there's he's always uh until we get to psycho he's always kind of like dipped his toes into horror they've always been a little more on the thriller suspense side of the story stories he likes to tell but um this is an example of like he was he was dipping his toes more into the horror element when um, James Stewart uh, started to turn his the the girl he found into his former love into the, into the blonde character again. Well, it's a level up because he was grieving and desperation, and it really resonated with me because I'll get I'll get personal with everybody. And I'm, I'm open book. It's like my my part my partner um, he passed away about almost three years ago, so. Or th- over three years ago, and those scenes where he kept seeing her, but it wasn't her, and he kept—I was there, I've been there, and I was like, "Oh fuck, that's accurate." And you just like—and and it happens with a lot of people who lose somebody. Uh, I think that book, "A Year of Magical Thinking," a lot of people say that that you look and you think you see that person, and you follow them. And PTSD, I did that in right? New York. I did it too. Yeah, like I would think that was—I was, know like, that wasn't him, but I would follow 
that person because I just wanted to like see him for a second, maybe that just someone that looks like him. And it was really sad. So there was like such a it resonated with me on that level. But then in the obsession, like, would I do that? Like, I was like, oh my God. Like, then he wanted her to dress like her. Right. But I think deep down, he knew inside that it was actually her. This, uh, we've talked about Lynch before. This film heavily influenced Mulholland Drive. And I realized how is because, so we're met with um, the same actress that played both roles. The It wouldn't be his client's wife. It was the actress in the film he hired to be his wife before he killed her. Um, but um, so she was so became this character in the film. That is not mm -hmm. the literal character, but the, but the character in the actual story um, so well that when we saw her again as a brunette, uh, when he went through the, the phase of turning her back into the original um, person he fell in love with, uh, she was so different that I was like, oh, my God, you know, because I just thought she, that's how she acted. And in Mulholland Drive, they that was the very first time I remember as like a little kid, I think, seeing it as a young man, uh, the, the rug really being pulled out from under me because I thought Naomi Watts's character was just going to be like that the whole time. And then when she did that scene in the film acting as someone else in the film, she was like just riveting just like it was so intense and like i just felt this the the world stopped moving for i didn't know my sister probably knows that i didn't know so um lynch was inspired by um vertigo with this film yeah specifically for, for Mahal Drive. that makes yep. a lot of sense but it was a good twist should we talk about the very end of it really quickly yeah we yeah so uh, i, I want to ask you mm -hmm. a question with so yeah okay so go she for it. does actually die right and eventually originally it was staged so that the husband could, you know, run away with their money kind of thing. But when we when she turns back into um, his vision of his of what he wanted in terms of his love interest, uh, she falls to the same death. She falls off of the clock tower. And I, I don't know what it was. I don't know. I, I keep going back and forth. What does it say to you? Like what? I kind of. OK, so I like awkwardly laughed at that scene but i've done that with like <laughs> yeah, a lot it was of abrupt and it was a silly there was no build-up to it when it was things like, are random kind of happened yeah i i think he i was like okay i guess he just wanted to end it that way i guess he just wanted her to die because he usually has them kind of like in marnie they go off they like they, they kind of like resolve things at the end and and same thing in like uh rear window rear window they like work things out and you could but the, this one, she's like, we're just going to kill her off. I think yeah. I really honestly feel like well, he was what just is, like. What, I, I guess I'm asking, what do you feel like it's trying to say in terms of the story? Trying to figure that out. I've got to be, I, I wish somebody like, yeah, tweet us or something. But my, my to go is like that relationship would have, was always a lie. Yeah. Like, I guess that, that's the closest thing I got is that betrayal when it comes to betrayal, there's there is never a happy ending. Like he tried to turn her into the woman and fall in love and tried to try to continue what they had. But when he learned of the reality of their relationship, mm -hmm. that he was betrayed, it only ends in sorrow. And in this, it, it would be literal sorrow because she ended up dying. That, yeah, that's the closest thing I had. And there's no it. way he would be with her because she was the woman... Um, Kim Novak, is that her name? The actress? Part of a murder, because she allowed that to happen. Even though she said she didn't 
she was going to snap her neck, right? Or he was going to kill his wife. I think she said that. She's like, I, I don't remember know. that part of the plot. I didn't know she was going to be, th- I don't know, something like that. Uh, she tried to act like she wasn't sure it was going to happen. But there was no way that that wasn't really the person he fell in love with. It was a lie and that she clearly couldn't live with herself anymore. <laughs> so she just very melodramatic. My dad said, he's like, oh, Hitchcock film, so melodramatic. But the acting oh, of- very melodramatic. Yeah, he's like, the acting of this time was just, just so corny. Well, it came from the theater. And yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, like we grew up with uh, already this sea change. You know, we, we saw it kind of in the 80s of we wanted the actors, the directors were telling the actors, no, we want to make it as real looking as possible. Mm-hmm. You, know, you should be interacting with each other as as if you would do it in real life. And we see that to it in probably to a fault nowadays, mm-hmm. honestly, where it's like everything has to be dark and gritty and raw and real. And sometimes we just want to have fun at the movies and, and have escapism and shit. So there is a pendulum effect there. But but yeah, back then it was, yeah, it was a lot of overacting. A very lot of stylized. Yeah, yeah, very exactly. stylized. It's like theatrical. The, the way like women that. would swoon like, oh my God. Uh, uh, and their face, uh, their mouth would like push up against the wall or something. You're I like, can't what? even, yeah, they put their forehead over their uh, (laughs) their forearm over their forehead and ah who acts like that in real life nobody I do. Okay. The spoiler alert. No, kidding. Your wife's uh, like, your wife's like, can you stop? Could you? Uh, Novo. God. Um, that leads us to North by Northwest, 1959. North by Northwest tells the story of a man on the run after being mistook by a shadowy organization as a high profile spy, seeking to prevent him from blocking their plan to smuggle out a microfilm from the country that contains government secrets. Before I pass it back to you, I want to say that I had to look this up. So a little deep diving here. So I was like, as I, as I was watching this, I was like, this is a fucking Bond movie. This is how it feels to me. And uh, I was like, okay, did the Bond, did the Bond films come out before this or after or what? So the actual book, the very first mm-hmm. book in his, in Mr. Fleming's series, um, Casino Royale, that had the James Bond character was in uh, 1952. So it was seven years before this film came out. So what I think is that the actual novelizations probably inspired Hitchcock. And then when they made this movie, or or I would say Hitchcock, well, Hitchcock in a way, but more so the writer, the screen mm-hmm. screenplay writer for this film. Uh, but clearly the film itself, so this is definitely Hitchcock, inspired the look of James Bond movies to come. So the very first film adaptation was in 1962, three years later. And that was Dr. No. This other form of art inspired this art. And then that art was inspired the film adaptations of that original art. Like it's just, it's it's always very cyclical. And I find that fascinating to see how these things connect to each other. Now, Ms. Parsons in our pre-show said, she, uh, she wasn't crazy about North by Northwest. Do tell. I, I, I just fell asleep. I'm sorry, guys. Like, I'm going to be very honest. It wasn't as exciting. I actually thought it was pretty exciting. I wish he was a spy, though. I'm going I to watch that was, it. I wish that was the plot twist at the end, that he was one of the spies the whole time. Yeah. And he was just like a regular fucking dude that just got caught up in this, you know, because, again, I already said this as part of the um, intro to the discussion section, that he loves these themes. He likes mm-hmm. mistaken identity stories. So I think this is still, again, in terms of narrative, so plot characters, development 
of the storyline, character arcs, a la narrative, and the cinematography, I think it it was excellent. You know, is it is it the best of the hits, which is Vertigo, Vertigo, this North by Northwest, Psycho and the Birds? I don't know. I don't think so. I think you're right. People who love Bond films will like obviously love this. My brother yeah. was like, I love North, Bond films. My brother's like, oh, North by Northwest is my my favorite, and Psycho. He's like, I think those are his best films. Those were done back to back, basically yeah. like a year apart. Exactly. I said, I, I looked at him today. I go, I fell asleep watching North by North. I tried two times watching it. Like I'm, I don't. And he's like, really? It's so amazing. And he went into like a thing and I was like, I got to keep watching uh stage fright. Get out of here. I was like, <laughs> I was like really focused. I don't got time for this shit. I know. But like my mom, lo- like my mom likes it too. My dad's like, you know, North by Northwest was a little too slow for me. Like he's like, I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I, I really love Vertigo. Or I'd have to disagree. I thought it was pretty fast paced for, for, for these standards of films at the time, mind you. But yeah, it was okay. I'm going to rewatch it. I think I just had a lot going on this week and I was cramming. I was a bad researcher and I was cramming a lot. No, of that's, okay. that's okay. Like, we'll, we'll talk about a different mental state and that okay. is a 1960s psycho. Fuck yes. So psycho tells the story of a woman on the run planned by Janet Lee. I, I'm mentioning the actor, actual actress name for a very important reason. And we'll get to that who meets an untimely demise by the hands of a motel owner and operator and goes through the trials and tribulations of the people in her life that seek out to discover what happened. I want to start with this. I think of all of the, of all of the parts, you know, I think it really came together with psycho. And I think that's why it's the most celebrated. And I mm-hmm. would agree. I think as a film, as a whole, you know, when you add up the performances and the direction and the look of the film and all these and, and just and the, the plot suspense. and the narrative the and suspense. the suspense. Yeah. And the horror, the, you know, this this created the slasher. It film did. Genre. The serial um, killer. The, right. the original. We didn't know what serial killer I think was this then. One is the best. Yeah. Of the of the films uh, of it, you know, as much as. I liked Vertigo more for the color theory and the look of it. You know, I think that definitely wins in that category over Psycho, partly because Psycho went back back to black and white. Yeah, you know, yeah a, I was going to say that. Bigger, or it was on a smaller budget. But I think it actually added to it with the horror, you know, because they could they could play with a lot of the lighting and and the look of the film because it was black and white. And he yeah, and he brought a new fear to the oh, yes. uh, public. Um, exactly hotels and <laughs> the fear of the middle-aged white man <laughs> yeah. which we are still very we're afraid still, of we're still very we are still of petrified yes. of that man so. and that's why i mentioned jane at least so um that had never been i i gotta give credit where credit's due so our producer clayton anderson actually brought this to my attention that that had never been done before in a film and i didn't even think about it that way that they killed off a high profile actress and character right away you know, they killed Janet Lee's character. And this was also um, the, um, the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so and I, and I was like, oh, well, there's like something I should have known, but I just it just didn't dawn on me. Oh, but that that is true. I guess this was the first of that kind of revelation, if mm-hmm. you will. And um, yeah, I just think it really came all together. And it's um, it's an excellent, excellent film. It was a it was- full stop. Yeah. All right, see you guys. Yeah. Bye. Uh, it was yeah. It was excellent film. What is it? What's his name? Still lives up. It's very timeless. Of course, I still laughed at the end when you see his face and you realize it's like he's in the mom's wig and stuff. And like, I think I just laugh at awkwardness a lot, and I find it, and I joyfully laugh. I don't laugh because it's bad. I laugh because I'm like, fuck yes, this is amazing. I think I. 
I also think this is a first of its kind for the subject matter. Like mm-hmm. we've never seen mental illness portrayed on film and film like this ever before either. That he had like split personalities. And they described it. Yeah, and the, exactly. the psychiatrist came out. I saw the remake a long time ago, which got terrible oh, with Vince reviews. Vaughn. <laughs> yeah, and it was terrible. And I remember being like, what the fuck? But stick the, to comedy. They did it so much better because in that the new in Vince Vaughn's one they did, like they actually had the psychiatrist talking to him in this white room. Whereas in this one, you don't see them talking. He just comes out. So you leave that to your imagination of what that conversation was like. Mm-hmm. You actually really don't see much of him speaking in his mom's voice. Like you just see. So there's that mystery still there. Yeah. I mean, you see him at the end trying to, you know, at the end you see him in his mom's robe and the wig and everything. Right. But the way that he explains it at, and the dialogue, um, it's just very like he does it in layman terms because we didn't have that then. Like there wasn't an explanation. And split personality disorder, even till now, is very much debated within the psychiatric um, world. So it was very, it, I found it and I love anything. I think that's why I love psychological th- thrillers is I love anything that has to do with psychology and serial killers. And I'm, I'm that girl. I'm that girl. Absolutely. And then we, (laughs) and then we take another turn with the birds, 1963. The birds tells the story of when literal birds, usually innocuous become dangerous and predatory and how a group of people trapped in the middle look to escape the horror of uh, the birds. Uh, So we have to talk about this. Uh, There's a a little bit of an elephant in the room. Like Mm -hmm. we talked about this in our Coco Chanel show where uh, sometimes you shouldn't meet your heroes. Um, That's why we've always focused on the art. And um, I read that uh, he was very abusive. There was accounts of him being abusive to Tippi Hedren, um, who was the lead female uh, character in this, in this film. And, um, God, it's, I, uh, it's a shame again. Um, we have to touch on that because I feel like, uh, the more we get into the, the histories of these things, the more we learn the darker corners mm-hmm. of all these. I didn't know about lives. this. Yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I actually didn't know about it until like a yesterday until the day before we decided to record this. And I was like, Oh God, fuck me. Him too. Like we cannot win. Um, so of course we don't con- condone any of that, uh, behavior against any people. We should all get along. Oh. But, uh, um, what did he do? What was the, he was, uh, I think, uh, he had made sexual advances against Tippy. and okay. he was very controlling. And then in the scenes that, um, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute. It was a technically profound film. I feel like of all these these four big hits, I mean, the amount of practical and special effects and puppetry and use of live birds, like they really pulled it off for 1963, mm-hmm. of making <laughs> the birds scary, which is not a scary film today but back then in 1963 you could see why people were petrified of this concept we see this all the time too uh before we get there but yeah he um he was like just controlling i think uh there was sexual advances and um she was she was trapped in in a contract and and for her times you know i don't think anybody believed her and i think only until 2012 that there was a piece dedicated to what you actually went through. I'm glad the light finally came out. And I'm also yeah, not surprised. It always like, does though. I, that's, that's my philosophy. It's like, you know, things will always come to light. 
you know, no matter what. Uh, you give somebody, you wave a dollar bill in front of somebody's face um, and some power and they change. Yeah. Like things. Yeah. They get this weird. This was a height people of his get, fame. People get too, weird. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I, I, there has to be a part. Of course, we have to say for legal reasons that, again, these were allegations. Nothing were proved at the time. Things like that. But again, you um, just study the evidence and mm-hmm. you can come to your own conclusions that Maybe there was some abusive practices going on here. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, um, the Brutes was okay. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm so used to the level of horror we have today and the uh, technical abilities, you know, with special effects and things like that. I, I get it on a fundamental level, you know, the fundamentally, you know, because I think uh, I have a fear of like big bugs, you know, spiders and things mm-hmm. like that. And um, I get it like these birds became like locusts, like biblical locusts, and they were swarming. You know, that idea of being swarmed and eaten alive and things of that nature uh, is horrifying. petrifying. Yes. Uh, so I kind of get it on that level. And for him to use of all creatures, birds, like the least scary predatory animals on the planet, you know, because birds are often, you know, signs of like doves, you know, of innocence and purity and virginity and all these things. And so I, I guess that's why uh, he did it that way. But I, I thought it was a solid okay. Um, I think on a technical level, I think it's why it's so a lot. I gave it four and a half stars. I do the stars rating. So I, I love, <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. Uh, oh, why do I do the star rating? Or why did no, I get no, 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 no. Yeah. Why did um, you oh, I loved the heat. Out of how- five stars, right? Yeah, out of five stars, I gave it four and a half. Well, it's also, it was very popular among like the art, like the art house crowd kind of the kids, like the art kids, a, a lot of um, fashion, like we, we like co- costume contests. You would always see people, girls being dressed as, as the birds. Um, I, yeah, yeah, that was like a big thing. Like, That's oh, funny, another man. art girls dressed up as the birds. Like there was like one of the, I think a lot of, um, yeah, art like kids. Like as an actual bird? No, they dress up as T.B. Hendrick with like oh, the okay. suit and the bird attacking her, like blood coming oh, off. Okay. Like it was very like. I'm picturing like one of your colleagues or friends in this huge bird costume <laughs> i one of my favorite characters of that film was the the lady that knew all about the birds and she was, was just the like seagulls? no i'm kidding <laughs> no the seagulls no it's the woman that knew all about the birds and she was talking about it but like did, they don't ever confirm the it but the reason why the birds were attacking is because the lovebirds were in the cage they just wanted the lovebirds uh... out Right? Oh. Did you get that? That's the I whole did thing. Not. No. I was like, it's the lovebirds that they kept because they kept putting to it. And she's like, Mom, can I have the lovebirds? And they were just really calm. I'm like, and it was a moment no. she got there with the lovebirds in the cage, and the birds were like, What the fuck? And something about whatever, maybe it was a frequency. That's the whole time. I was like, it's that's that's it. It's the lovebirds. Did, did hmm. anybody else get that? Like that's uh, yeah. I I did not get that. So I didn't I didn't know. research yeah. I didn't research it, but that's what I I no put that's into. a very good theory. No, I like okay. it. Let, okay. Let's cool. With that. Okay, and then we get to end our list with 1964's Marnie. Marnie tells the story of a confidence woman that steals from her unlikely employers, but when she tries to steal from a man that is also in love with her, when he discovers her history of crime, he blackmails her into marrying him. But he finds that he might have gotten more than he bargained for, and ultimately tries to save her from herself. Uh, Marnie is, um, I think, actually, I'm going to start with a quote from you, Miss Parsons. Uh, it's kind of like a Lifetime movie that we have today. Like the original very, Lifetime very movie. Melodra- yeah, original Lifetime movie. Very melodramatic. Um, I actually, because um, you said that before, I actually saw it. So I, I, it did kind of prime my brain a little bit. I think I liked it a little more than what a 
original Lifetime movies today. Yeah, um, of course. But it, it it was it was start. You did start to see this decline again in his his film quality, um, especially after that. These these last four were just so huge, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's still good. You know, a lot of historians consider Marnie a classic too. Uh, believe it or not, um, but I I don't really quite feel that way um i i don't want to put words in it i'd enjoyed it so much for how absurd it was like i found it so entertaining i was like talking out loud watching it like this is like the epitome of a toxic relationship like this should be played in every like like a marriage like counseling (laughs) don't do this (laughs) i don't know we don't have time for a regular session but here watch marnie this is hilarious i just thought it was so and then like he was manipulating her and like bribing her blackmailing her because he was in love with her like this is so fucked (laughs) like i just thoroughly i just thoroughly enjoyed it for the absurdity of it sure okay well Yeah. yeah i i will still say there there was a lot of directorial skill being mm-hmm. shown here for sure give it a give it a watch we got we got to see sean connery you know uh be uh the debonair leading man he was perfect at that jesus christ he like slapped her at one point and i thought about sean connery how he like loved to talk about sometimes a woman needs a good slap and you're oh, like, oh god jesus <laughs> like, oh, no. oh no i was like oh there it is there's his yeah. slapping of the woman which i oh, do not god. I do. yeah but no. let's focus on the art. So let's bring this, let's bring it on home and tie a bow on this bee. So tell the good people, Miss Parsons, why should we study uh, these classic films? My, when I say this. <laughs> why not? Why not? Time, time again, like you need to watch where things come from to understand where they are now. Uh, that's kind of my, my motto. Yeah. And he inspired many, many, many thrillers. Like he invented the thriller we didn't know what the thriller was until hitchcock came along right the true thriller yeah he started it that was him he was the originator of it and of suspense and until you watch his films you're not going to really understand um how how what he meet what that means like the the uh, master of suspense until you watch his stuff and aesthetically and artistically he was an innovator. Yeah, he had, he was very eccentric, and you see that in his films. And I think eccentric minds do tend to create really amazing art. So there you have it, guys. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's filmography from 1950 to 1965. I want to thank you for listening. I, of course, want to thank my guest, Miss Alexander Parsons, for being here today. Of course, before we go, you know we got a little more for you, a little icing on the cake, a little cherry on top with what we call the gem of the week. If you're new to the show here and don't know what the gem of the week is, it's essentially something we like to talk about here at the end of our shows. That doesn't always fit into the scheme of the episode because it may just be on our radar and last day or week or maybe even month but we want to give it to you guys so you guys can dig deeper today's gems are brought to you by zencaster zencaster is our go-to tool for remote podcast recordings what's great is that you can record separate audio and video tracks and it's all backed up on a secured cloud so you never lose your hard work even better it's easy to use and there's nothing to download so go to zen dot ai that's z-e-n dot ai slash art of the beholder or just use promo code Art of the Beholder, and get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. Now back to the gems. Um, I'm going to be short and sweet. I really, on on a different kind of uh, film perspective, there's some animated shorts on Disney Plus called I Am Groot about Groot. There's something Mm -hmm. about baby Groot that I absolutely love. I find him, uh, I find his character very cute and silly and fun. 
and there's like five or six, five or five minute shorts on um, Disney Plus right now, and they're a lot of fun. And um, I have a very sp- special gem because the beauty of um, the show and um, getting to meet someone like Miss Parsons and our other guests and and so on and some guests in the future that you guys haven't heard yet is I get to meet a lot of amazing uh, new artists blossoming artists and that have uh, some incredible potential and i can't wait to see how they evolve and one of those is uh a um a guy i met recently online um that goes by the moniker the monarch he likes to make electronic music and he's a little new to the scene so i just wanted to give him a shout out he may be on the show one day who knows uh so uh keep making music and we'll keep listening uh miss parsons what do you got for us um, I have the new season of um, what we do in the shadows has been out and um, it's what's great. It's only like 20, 30 minutes and it's hilarious. And uh, yeah, check it out, guys. Yeah. And if you like that, of course, you can check out our stuff at NovaDayProductions.com. There you'll find things like the Entropy Sessions, Post Meridium, Adulteration, Cancel Culture Lotto. Of course, the show, you'll see ads for the show um, and our other shows. And of course, um, there's more to come. So don't forget to follow us at underscore Novo underscore day and day is just D E and at Nova day media. Uh, don't forget to like, and subscribe. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for the rest of the outro. So just, you know what to do. Just do the thing <laughs> and um, write and review who cares. And if you'd like to sponsor our little love child here, you know what to do. Okay. Yeah. You got it. Um, <laughs> if you want to get a hold of Ms. Parsons, Ms. Parsons, tell the good people how they can connect. Yeah. Find me on Instagram. It's Alexandra underscore Parsons. You can see all my designs, contact, me for any um illustration work or any questions you have about art design or painting also alexandraparsons.com there you go and until next time you know what to do be good to each other and as always good luck and godspeed we love you art of the beholder is brought to you by novo day productions created and hosted by novo day and the novo day collective facebook.com slash novo day media at novo day media on twitter and instagram Music by A Company, facebook.com slash acomusic123, aco on Spotify. Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S, of thejusticecompany.com, and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved. Of, of Jimmy Stewart.